0: Join me tonight, if you would, in the book of First Peter, in chapter four. First Peter, chapter number four, and um, we're going to read verse number seven through eleven. First Peter, chapter four, verses seven through eleven. Take your time, Logan. Do you ever just think that we might be living through the end of the world? It's not hard to think that, is it? They just can't behave themselves in the Middle East. Israel, Palestine, fighting one another. Iran, up to heaven only knows what. Bombings in Lebanon. Russia, prowling around, up to no good. The Chinese with their fingers and a little bit of everything. And then there's the civil unrest in our own country. And it seems as if in the middle of all of this, Christianity is having a hard time finding its voice, finding its place, and in some instances, finding its reason to exist. Even among people who would claim to be Christians. And then you come to church. If you came to Sunday school this morning, and you heard the Sunday school lesson from Mark chapter 13. Wars and rumors of wars. Earthquakes in various places, fig trees blossoming, and you think, well, this is it. I even had a church member ask me just last week, Preacher, is this the year? And I didn't really understand. That was the question, is this the year? And I didn't understand. I was like, the year for what? The year the Lord comes back. Is this the end of the world? Well, you may be surprised to know That Christians have always believed that they're living through the end of the world. In fact, in Acts chapter number 2, you find Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And while he quotes from the Old Testament prophet of Joel, he says that the coming of the Spirit occurred in the last days. The first day of the church, he's saying we're living in the last day. 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians about the Old Testament believers. He says that the things that happened to them happened as examples to us upon whom the end of the age has come. Paul said upon us 2,000 years ago. Back then, he said, we're living through the end of the age. And you'll see in verse number 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4 that Peter uses the same kind of language. As if the end of the world was something that Happened in his lifetime. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is within our grasp. The church at the end of the world. But what if, what if the church is actually supposed to be a community of people who are, as the songwriter said, a foretaste of glory divine? What if here tonight, in our little church in Alabama, you and I are supposed to be a community of believers, a family of faith, a group of God's people who are right now a little preview of what God is going to do in the world. What if we are the people who represent the future in the present? What if we are pointing ahead to what God will do and can do for all of creation in what He's doing in us. What would that mean if that was true? In a world that seems like it's coming apart, what does it mean to be a church at the end of the world? Let's read this together tonight. first, Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. Amen. The book of First Peter is a book that is written to a church that is suffering. In fact, Corey, I thought about this this afternoon, that almost all of the New Testament was written either to Christians who were fighting or Christians who were suffering. Here in 1 Peter, it's written to Christians who are suffering. If you remember the old story about Nero who played played his fiddle while Rome burned, remember that? Well, we know he had good taste in music if you like fiddle music, but beyond that, he was a creep. And after Rome burned, which he was probably responsible for, he needed a scapegoat. And the Christians were a convenient scapegoat. And he laid the blame at these anarchistic, anarchistic, these, these troublemaking Christians these arsonistic Christians, and he said, we've got to destroy these people. And so Christians are hunted. Christians are hated. Christians are persecuted to the extent that in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter addresses this letter to the Christians in the dispersion. That's a way of saying that Christians have been scattered to the four winds, like seed sown into a field. They've just been thrown out into the world, and they're on the run for their lives. But these exiles are still God's people. They're God's chosen people. And God has a specific plan and purpose for them. He says in 1 Peter 2 and 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had received mercy, but now, once you had not received mercy, but now, You have received mercy. Peter does something incredible in those verses of Scripture. He reaches all the way back in his Bible memory. And he pulls from the book of Exodus, chapter number 19, what God told the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And he takes that description and he lays it over this exiled church. And he says, you are the people of God. You are chosen. You are a royal priesthood. And you exist today the way the nation of Israel existed back then. You exist to live for the glory of God, that people would see what Jesus has done for you and what God is still doing in you, and they would see how God has dealt with you and glorify God. You exist as a, the King James says, a peculiar people. Now, I've known a lot of Baptists in my life that were real peculiar. But what he's saying is you, amen, what he's saying is you're unique. There's something particular about you that God has set his love upon you. And God is demonstrating in you how He's going to work in the lives of others that don't yet know Him. But for that to happen, churches have to have a certain kind of culture. There has to be something about the church that produces that attraction. Now when you talk about culture, You're talking about something that's really kind of hard to define. It's like asking a goldfish to describe water. It's not really suited to explain it as much as he is just swimming in it. That's the way we are with culture. It's hard to explain culture, isn't it? But here's, here's an example of culture. When I was in England, when you're in London, anywhere that you go, apparently you have to take the underground, the tube, the subway, to go anywhere. And you'll be crammed into a subway car with 500 British people. And they do not want to talk to you. They don't want to look at you. In fact, they look at you with this look on their face that's almost like, I see you and I hate that I'm looking at you. And at the same time, I'm looking at you without really seeing you. It's the craziest thing in the world. And they won't talk to you at all. But if you put a couple rednecks in one of those underground cars... Man, we're going to talk to each other about the weather. We're going to complain about gas prices. We'll probably work in something about Dale Earnhardt before it's over with, right? We'll just talk. Why? Because it's a different culture. And I noticed in London that if you sat next to an English person, they didn't want to talk to you. But if an Irish person got on that train, look out. Why? Because it's a different culture, right? It's a different culture. Churches have cultures too. For instance, you would agree with me that A Baptist church in rural Alabama is going to be different than a Baptist church in rural Maine. Right? A Baptist church in rural Alabama is going to be different than a Baptist church in um, urban Atlanta. They're going to be different. They're going to have a different environment, a different feel, a different culture. And all kinds of things affect the cultural temperature of a church. Things like The church's primary race, the church's age, and I mean literally how long the church has existed, the age of the membership, the education, any number of things can affect the church's culture. But what most people that sit in pews or in seats of a a church don't realize is that they have their hands on the thermostat of the church culture. We don't understand that we are culture makers in our church. Here's what I mean. Let me give you an example of this, all right? Every church in the country believes that they are the friendliest church in town. You can ask them, oh, I love my church because it's so friendly. But you visited some of those churches, haven't you? And they were every bit as warm and welcoming as a funeral home. Right? And God forbid you sit in the wrong seat. So if I say, and I think think we are a friendly church. I think we're a welcoming church. This is safe for me to say here. But if I want my church to be friendly, if I want my church to be welcoming, do you know what I absolutely can never do? I can never come in, sit in my seat, and say, all right, y'all be friendly to me. Right? A good place for an amen right there. If I want my church to be friendly, you know what I need to do? I need to be free. Yes, I need to be friendly. If I want my church to value preaching, you know what I need to do? I need to sit up straight. I need to take good notes. I need to say amen. If the preacher, if he says something good, I need to laugh at his dumb jokes. What I don't need to do is... Now, I know y'all would never do that. I know. But some churches I've preached in before have done that. You see, we are people who shape the culture of our church. Now, if we want to be... The kind of church that the Bible describes that is actually the embodiment of the kingdom that is coming. If we are the embodiment of God's work in the world, if we are just a little taste of what heaven's going to be like, how do we do that as a church? And in particular, how do you do that as a church member? That's the question before us tonight, I think. Because, you know, we've all had the talk, a chain is only as strong as the weakest link. Church is only as strong as its weakest member. Right? The church is really not any more friendly than the rudest person there. It's not any more mature than the least mature person there. What does God want from you in order to produce the kind of church culture? If your finger is on the thermostat of our church, what does God want you to do and expect from you to produce the kind of church that is a foretaste? Of the world to come. Well, notice first, if you want a culture of prayer, you need to share life. If you want a culture of prayer, you need to be self controlled. And then he's going to say, We need to share life. Notice what he says. Therefore, in these verses, he says, Since the end of all things is at hand, be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Everybody, again, in the country is going to say, We've got a praying church. We believe in the power of prayer. We love prayer. We want to see what prayer can do. And that's right. Christians ought to be praying people. You read the accounts of the early church in the book of Acts, and my goodness, they're praying about everything. And God is answering those prayers, and God is moving. They did not let the conversation that they had been having with Jesus die on their lips, but they continued to talk. But do you realize that a praying church is a foretaste of the eternal kingdom of God that's coming? Because in the book of Revelation, the Bible says... That in heaven, there is no temple. Why? Because God dwells with men. And there, we will be in communication with Him. We will be in communion with Him. We will be in His presence with Him. And thank God, we won't be praying by faith, but we will be talking to Him face to face. But in the meantime, we pray. In the meantime, we continue talking to the God who wants to hear from us. We continue calling upon our Father. We should be a praying people. We should want that for our church, to be a praying people. And here, prayer for Peter is not a means to an end. But it's actually an end itself. Now, we think about prayer, and it's not wrong to think about prayer this way, but we do think about prayer as a means to an end, don't we? If my daughter's being abused by her husband, I'm praying for him that God would save him and change him. That's a good use of prayer. Again, God is our Father who knows the things we have need of before we ask. Pray and let God work. Pray and let God worry, as Dr. Luther said. But that's not how Peter talks about prayer. Prayer is not the means to the end. Prayer is the goal we're working to. How do we get to that goal in Peter's mind? Look at what he says. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. For the sake of your prayers. It's an interesting little, I don't know, frankly, if it's a feature or a bug or what of Peter's theology, but Peter seems to believe that prayer can be hindered by a faithless life. Now, do you know anything at all about Simon Peter that would lead you, that would help you understand why Peter believed that? Gentlemen, you watch and pray while I go over yonder, is what Jesus said. And I go over here and pray in the garden. And Peter and the disciples fall asleep. Peter knew what it meant to have prayer hindered by his lack of self-control. And here he says, if you want to pray, you need to be self-controlled. Now, in my experience, we do not think of self-control as a fruit or a gift of the Spirit. We think that when the Spirit of God shows up, that everything's ecstatic and everything's exciting and people are rolling around and foaming at the mouth and all this kind of thing. But do you realize in Galatians 5 that the Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is temperance and the King James or self-control? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance. Spirit-filled people are people who control themselves. They're not out of control. They're not out of control when somebody loses their temper with them. We still here? They're not out of control when they pull up their Instagram app and they look at the comments. They're not out of control when temptation rears its head in their life. They're under control. And he says... People who will ultimately pray well are people who are sober-minded. Now, by the grace of God, I can say that I've never been drunk in my life. But some of y'all may have known some people that have been drunk before. And from what I understand. And what's funny, what did Micah? I know. I know, buddy. From what I understand, if you are under the influence of alcohol, things can get a little bit fuzzy. You think that <laughs> <laughs> nobody thought you were, George. <laughs> yeah, we need, to, we need to pray. You have too many drinks and you think you can fight all 50 guys. Have too many drinks and you think that the, the laws of gravity no longer apply to you. But here, Peter wants us to realize that clear thinking leads to clear praying. If you want to have a culture of prayer in your church, Peter says you need to be self-controlled. And that is to say, you need to be so filled with the Spirit of God that you're not impulsive, that you're not unpredictable, but rather you are led by the Spirit of Christ. And if you are, you will pray. But then he also says this, if you want a culture of peace, then you need to share life. The last words of verse number 9, the last two words without grumbling. Would you like peace in your church? You know, in the kingdom of heaven, there will be no conflict. It will be peace. The prince of peace will reign forever. Paul says in Romans 15 that the God of peace will crush the serpent. That He will reign in victory. And did you know that God is always at peace? That the reason He can give us peace that passes all understanding is because He is always and ever at peace. Who's ever going to threaten His plans? Who's ever going to overturn His wishes? Who's ever going to undermine Him? Nobody and nothing. God is perfectly at peace. And God produces people who are at peace, at least ideally. When the Prince of Peace reigns, There should be peace so that, somebody get an amen loaded up, so that the church does not have to feel like the 8th grade girl's locker room. But the church can be at peace. But if you want peace, if you want a culture of peace and calm, well, you need to learn how to share life with one another. Which means what? It means above all, Peter says. Above everything else, keep loving one another earnestly. Keep loving one another in such a way that it stretches you. That's what the word earnest means. Keep loving one another in a way that sometimes may hurt you. In a way that causes your patience to grow. In a way that is beyond you. In a way that is supernatural. In a way that is unusual. Keep loving one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter now pulls out his Bible knowledge and he goes to the book of Proverbs. Love covers a multitude of sins and this does not mean... That love ignores sin. It does not mean that love makes sins that are very, very dangerous. And I say, ah, well, it's just not a big deal. Love is not dismissive of sin. But what he's saying here, I think, is along the lines of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things. Love does not turn every molehill into a mountain. Love is not so easily offended that. It can't let minor things just go. Love has broad shoulders. It can carry a lot. Love isn't trying to hold things over people's heads. right? Love covers a multitude of sins. Have you ever been cooking and had a grease fire? You panic in the moment. And you think, I've got to put it out. What's your first instinct? Water. What's the worst thing you can do? Yes. What do you need to do? You need to smother it with something, right? A lot of times what happens for us in churches is we handle little grease fires and we just chunk the water on them. Like, man, this is really going to help. And then we're standing outside the burned down ruins of the church thinking, Lord, I have no idea what happened. What do you do? You smother it with love. That's what Peter says. Smother it with love. Love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's what it means to share life, to be hospitable. Of all the Christian values and virtues and ethics of the New Testament, there may be none that are more overlooked in our fast-paced and busy world than this idea of being hospitable, of welcoming people to our tables and welcoming people into our lives, of bringing people into genuine fellowship. And some people I know do have opportunity and gifts of hospitality more than other people do. Understand that. Some people are just great hosts and hostesses, and some people maybe aren't. But we are commanded to show hospitality to others without grumbling. Now, the problem with showing hospitality and bringing people in your house is there's going to be plenty of opportunities for grumbling because you are going to want everything to be just right. You are going to want it to be the best roast that they have ever eaten. And you're going to get so stressed out making sure that the house is clean and looks perfect. it look like nobody lives in your house. <laughs> like they're walking into the Louvre. Everything is perfectly preserved, manicured. Then you want to make sure the table setting is right. And you want to make sure you get the forks so they go on the right or the left. And... But then when the people come, they eat and scarf down the food. And they don't compliment the roast. They track mud through the carpet. Honey, they're so ungrateful. I'm never going to have anybody over again. Peter says, Show hospitality without grumbling. That means welcome people into your life, even if they might take you for granted, even if they might take advantage of you. Share life with them by welcoming, in, welcoming them into your home and welcoming them into your table. I don't think we really understand fully the significance of what this means for the New Testament because when the New Testament was written, nobody had a church building to go to. Christianity was not something that happened in a building like this. It was something that happened in people's homes for the most part. It was something that happened around people's tables. And I just want you to think about the difference in relationship that's going to occur when you're not just sitting in your seat watching the professional Christian yell at you about being a Christian but you're sharing a meal with other Christians. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in preaching probably more than any of the rest of us do because, I mean, i got skin in the game, right? Like I've got a vested interest in in doing this. But I also understand that it's so easy to come into a building, sit in a seat, and listen to a preacher and never open up your life and never share a meal. So let me encourage you. Be hospitable. If you don't want to invite them to your house, take them to Jack's. You you will tithe, I hope, of your income. And you're going to eat two or three meals a day. Why not give one of those away a week? In fellowship. In welcome. In listening to someone. In praying with someone. In getting to know someone. And don't grumble because the Bible says not to. Show hospitality without grumbling. That's only if you want a culture of peace in your church. Finally, Peter says, if you want a culture of praise... Be a good steward. He finishes these verses by looking ahead to the great anthems of praise that will echo off of the walls of glory in everything that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. Then he breaks out into his own doxology. And I just imagine Peter writing this and he just gets called up in the Holy Ghost and he starts praising the Lord. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And then he gives himself an amen. Like he wrote it. Yeah, Peter, that's good. Amen, Peter. He's having a good time in Jesus. And I like that because, folks, if you look ahead to what we're going to do in heaven, we're going to worship Jesus. We're going to worship Jesus. And the wonderful thing that happens when we gather together as the people of God is that as imperfect as we are, as fallen as we are, man, on Sunday mornings, we worship Jesus together. And it's just a little bit of glimpse for a glimpse for 15 or 20 minutes a couple times a week of what we are going to do eternally as the people of God. And we encourage one another and help one another. You have no idea how good it does my heart to stand at my seat and look into the choir and see people who I know are in physical pain, who I know are carrying burdens in their family, to lift their hands and worship Jesus, to see Catherine holding Ender, Or to see people whose hearts are broken with tears coming down their face praising Jesus. Man, that is a glimpse of glory that you will not find anywhere else in this world. You won't find it anywhere. And God forbid that our church would ever just reduce it down to, well, I really don't like the music. Bless God, this ain't Christian entertainment. This is Christian worship. And in Christian worship, we are adoring Jesus, not just tickling my fancy. Now, I didn't mean to get in all that. But that's what's happening eternally, right? God is moving his people towards worship towards the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the climax. That's what God is moving towards. That one day all of creation, everything that is, would see and respond to Jesus the way the Father sees and responds to Jesus. And if you want a little bit of that down here, then you need to be a good steward. Now, I don't mean stewardship in the sense of giving your money. That's not what Peter's talking about here. Rather, he's talking about giving of yourself. Do you see what he says? As each, verse 10, as each has received a gift, not a financial gift, a spiritual gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Then he breaks those gifts down really into two categories, two broad categories. Speaking gifts, preachers, teachers, and others that communicate the Word of God serving gifts those with mercy administration different gifts you do that in the power of god then he says in order that in everything god may be glorified through Christ Jesus so what peter's saying is this that there are people in your church family they experience the grace of god in their lives through your faithful service through your use of the gifts that God has given you, they experience God's grace, and as they experience God's grace in you, what happens? They glorify God for the grace that they've enjoyed and experienced. That's and so what Peter's saying: is if you're stingy with the spiritual gifts that God has given you, then you're being stingy with the grace that God has given you, and so other people are going to be stingy with the glory that they should give to Jesus. Because they're not seeing God's grace at work in you. Now I don't know tonight how you've been gifted. Sometimes I wonder about how I've been gifted. But I do know that we need one another. Paul would compare it to parts of our body that depend on one another. That are connected to one another. That need one another. And He would say that each part plays a part. And when I am served by you, I rejoice at how God has ministered to me through you. When you are served by me, you likewise rejoice and praise our Lord for His grace to you. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Are we living through the end of the world? I think if we understand Scripture, we have to say, yes, we are. And it's not so much about what's happening on the news cycle in Jerusalem as much as it is what happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That when Jesus rose again from the dead, He rose again on the first day of a new world. And He's creating a people who are a new creation. That the kingdom of God is breaking into the world now through His people. And so as the people of God, I think we need to realize what time it is. When I was in London... We had a couple free days, you know, to go sightseeing. And so the first Monday that I had free, I said, all right, I'm going to see it all today. And I walked that day, I think, 16 miles. But what I found out was that everything that you really want to see in London is in about two square blocks. I was just totally oblivious to that. But once I figured it out, man, I rolled hard. And I walked down Downing Street towards Parliament. And I come to a a, a crosswalk, and Big Ben is on my left. And there's a guy in front of me, and he's got his phone out taking pictures of Big Ben, you know, which I did too. I've got pictures of Big Ben, you know, I've got all this stuff. And so he's standing. If I can get this image in your mind, standing right, right up, right on the sidewalk, right against the road. You know, they drive on the wrong side of the road there. He's right on the road traffic, black cabs, big red buses, everything's going by, and he's taking pictures of Big Ben. And he turns around, and he sees me standing behind him as I wait to cross, and he says something about how he, it's his first day in London, he's from Greece, and whatever, whatever, whatever. Apparently the Greeks will talk to you if the English won't. And then while he's telling me this, while he's looking pictures of Big Ben with his phone in his hand, a British man on a bicycle rolls up, stops right in front of us, And he says to the Greek guy holding the phone, looking at Big Ben, he says, Mate, do you have the time? Because he saw the phone in his hand. The cell phone has the phone. And he said, Oh, it's 1030 that morning, whatever it was. Cheers, mate. I looked at the guy, the Greek guy, watched the guy roll away in the bicycle, looked at Big Ben, looked at the Greek guy, the bicycle, And I told the Greek guy, I said, that dude was looking at the most famous clock in the world. He was looking right at it. And he missed it. He missed it. Many of us as the people of God have beheld the saving work of God in Christ. As God has brought salvation and forgiveness and grace and redemption and the blessings of heaven to us. And we're like that poor dude on the bicycle. Right? We're missing all of it, even though it's right in front of us. You know what God wants us to do? He wants us to see the glory of it and see the grandeur of it so that we would live for His praise as a community of redeemed people. Right here at the end of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for... This day of worship, fellowship that you've given us. God, I pray that you would go with us now as we go our separate ways. And Lord, even though we may not be gathered together in worship as a church family, I pray that we would still leave in bonds of fellowship, unity. And God, I pray that you would help us to be useful to you in the different places where you've given us to serve. Whatever our vocations are, Lord, in work, in school, as parents, as grandparents, as children, different areas of life, help us to show forth the Lord Jesus. I ask that, Lord, in his name, and I know you've heard us. Bless us when we meet together again on Wednesday night. In Christ's name, amen. We uh, need to have our church family meeting this evening.